Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Terry Hart is head of talent development in Zurich, North America, and author of the book, Hardwired to Learn, Leveraging the Self-Sustaining Power of Lifelong Learning. She also serves as adjunct faculty at Marquette University, where she teaches HR strategy for the College of Business. Terry's been a leader in the learning and development field across a range of industries at Fortune 500 and Fortune Global 500 companies. Having held roles at companies like GE, McKinsey, and Discover, Terry has personally worked on leadership and learning programs affecting hundreds of thousands of employees throughout her 25 plus years of experience in the learning and development space. Truly embracing lifelong learning, Terry holds a BA in economics from the University of Wisconsin, an MS in education from Indiana University, and an MBA from Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. Terry lives in Pleasant Prairie with her two doodles, Lily and Milo and enjoys time with her family and friends doing yoga, hiking, and paddling. Terry, welcome to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Awesome. So let's do this. Let's let's learn a little bit more about who Terry Hart is. Start out with you know where you were born, your upbringing, and take us to the journey to where you are today. Yeah, well, I'm actually from Milwaukee, but I spent the first few years of my life in, in San Diego. My, my dad was in the Navy and um, we actually moved back to Milwaukee when I was about four. Uh, and I, I moved around, as a child, I moved around quite a bit. In fact, the house that my parents still live in now that I've lived in since about fourth grade was actually, I think, the sixth place that I lived. So it was kind of interesting. I lived in several places by the time I was in fourth grade. But after fourth grade, we stayed in the same house. But, um, you know, very, I think, working class family. I was the middle child. Uh, and I joke with my friends a lot that I was the least favorite child. And it sounds sad in some way, but it's something that I am weirdly grateful for now because, um, you know, not only did I sort of do a lot of things to get attention, um, but I also ended up adopting a mindset of being just really super independent and, you know, just understanding that a lot of times my, my parents might have been a little bit more interested in what the older or younger child was doing, but it actually, I, I ended up just following my curiosity. And so I was just, I was an avid reader. I read all kinds of books. In fact, I remember reading a book I don't remember the name of. And even if I did, I don't know if I would say it. But I remember reading a book that one of my teachers thought was inappropriate. And I, I have to say that was one great thing about my mom. She, was, she just was like, you know what? She reads and that's what she does. And she didn't want to um, censor me. So I, I, that was actually probably very shaping for me, the opportunity to just read what I wanted to. Now I know why we connected so much. <laughs> I'm a middle child. <laughs> and so and so I want to let you know that we meet on Thursday nights, middle children, to no. go through all of our trauma that we had of the older 
being more interesting and then the younger being the baby. So. Yes, yes. I could talk about it for a very long time, but, you know, fast forward to being <laughs> in my 50s, to me, it was just the one of the biggest gifts and really an amazing opportunity. And I, I actually ended up being, you know, so independent and curious. And all of those things just are so integral to who I am. I, I remember one of my, one of my favorite childhood memories that I, that I tell every once in a while that I just laugh about because it, it just, it demonstrates how much times have changed, but it also kind of demonstrates who I was as a seventh grader. We had to, to, this was for geography class, like seventh grade geography. We had to write a paper on a topic. And for whatever reason, I decided to write it on French wines. <laughs> so, it's seventh I, grade. I, I know. I think <laughs> I read something in an encyclopedia. Like I wanted to do something on France, and I I looked up, you know, France in the encyclopedia, and it probably said France is famous for wine. And so I probably that's probably how I got there. But what was funny is. Somehow I found the address for the French ministry. And, you know, back in those days, of course, we didn't have the internet. And you might remember, Mark, I don't know, but just mailing away for information. Right, said, right. Yeah. Okay. And so I sent away for information. And, and weeks later, I got this huge box in the mail from like the French wine ministry. And inside of it was just a host of pamphlets and brochures, and then also this wonderful book that was written in both French and English. And I was, I was actually taking French in seventh grade too. Um, but it, it's a funny story because it just, what seventh grader <laughs> sends an, a letter to France asking for um, information on wine <laughs> and, and they sent me things. So um, yeah. that was wonderful. And it's affected me to this day. <laughs> Still appreciate French wine. It, it was, you know, we think about different times and a lot of times we sent a letter off with a couple stamps on it. And we didn't know whether anything was going to come back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, I think that was sometimes part of it too, though, you know, to go to the, <laughs> to go to the mailbox and sort of look and, oh, it's not there, you know, and then come yeah. back the next day. It's not there. And then to see it, it's <laughs> like, oh, this tremendous, like just happiness and joy. So, yeah, yeah. Delayed gratification. We don't have that so much anymore. <laughs> right. All right. So seventh grade, you're, the, the type of wine I was looking at in seventh grade was Mad Dog 2020. It cost like 12 bucks. And my mom and dad didn't know I was, I was looking at that. But so, so we're, we're tracking on the same path. Middle children were interested in wine, quote unquote. But, yeah. So continue taking us forward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really, I think I just developed this can-do attitude. My my curiosity led me to join, you know, I joined the Navy Reserves at, at age 17. So I was kind of an early version of cybersecurity. They called it a cryptologic technician communicator. And it was great because it actually, you know, being part of the Navy Reserves, it was important for me. It actually helped me put myself through college. And, you know, I ended up having a double major in political science and economics, I was really fascinated by sort of the empirical analysis piece of social sciences. I ended up, I didn't actually end up doing anything related to economics or political science directly, but you see economics is actually a big part of my book. So it's really influenced a lot about how I think about the world and particularly the branch of economics that I learned, didn't learn too much about at the time 
behavioral economics um, because it it really has to do with how we make decisions, and um, I think it's it's really fascinating. So, so my first job, I, I actually think, out of college was it's it's a combination job, you know, sort of like, oh, you have a political science degree and you know how to train people. And I ended up working for the 8th Judicial Circuit in Florida. <laughs> so long story how I got to Florida. But after college, I ended up traveling the country in a van. So, and, and this just, it's funny because people are writing books about this now as if this is a, a thing now, but I'm like, I did that in the 90s. <laughs> And we just explored and we ended up working our way through our travels. It seems like such a crazy story. It's really had a huge impact on me because when you realize how little it takes to sort of just survive, it kind of gets rid of a lot of the fear that you might have going through life. That's a great story. That's a really yeah. great story. But that's and how you- I ended up in Florida. And so people, you know, sort of like there was this segue where I didn't live in Wisconsin for a few years. And it was because I was traveling. And then we were, we found ourselves, you know, coming upon winter and wanting to go someplace warm. And it actually ended, Florida actually, Gainesville actually was a very good place to sort of transition back to normal living because you know, it's not, it's not easy sort of going from essentially being homeless to being in an apartment. Like there's so many different things like impediments that get in the way of like having a job and all those things that I learned. Again, this was just me and my independence and just sort of this can do attitude. I learned how to navigate a lot of different things and figured out, Oh, well, we need is a address and, you know, a phone number. So transitioning meant finding a place to stay. We actually, we found a, <laughs> we found a place where we could rent a, a camper in Florida for very cheap on someone's land and sort of live in it for a little while as we, and until we had enough money to pay rent. Talk to me about what your mom and dad taught you and what you learned because, you know, you take this year off. What, what, what did they teach you that had you started on this path of, hey, I want to explore. I want to, you know, can-do attitude. Yeah. Well, I actually put myself through college. And I think, you know, part of it was my, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And they had, you know, very limited resources. And they allocated those resources according to who they thought needed them the most. And at the time, when I was in my 20s, I thought that was pretty unfair. But, you know, my mom actually told me all the time that, you know, I I actually just don't think you need my help (laughs) and and continues to tell me that when she looks back at it, it's like, I knew you'd be fine. So I think there was a little bit of what really maybe was ingrained in me was just this confidence that I would be able to figure it out. And so it was, I mean, it's great. It was a huge gift. And that's what I, I think was so special was sort of this, this lack of attention, but under my, you know, it was underscored by this confidence that, you know what, I feel like you have the tools and the resources innately and you're going to be okay. And so I, I think having that with me has been something that I've carried, carried with me since. 
so I think that was that was just a, a critical piece of of all of it. So you move away from living in a van down by the river. I had to say that. I mean, it was it was the first thing I thought of. We were we were on the river. We we spent quite a bit of time on the river. So, <laughs> so you're getting established in in Gainesville. What's next? So, so I, we actually ended up moving home at some point. Moving home to Wisconsin or moving back. We actually we ended up moving to Madison. Um, and I I I lived. I subsequently lived in different places in Wisconsin. Madison, Watertown, and then down where I live now, which is in the far southeast corner. But I ended up pursuing a a number of jobs, I think, a, a different careers in my corporate life. And I, I'll say in my corporate life, because I also had like this parallel other life. <laughs> but in, in sort of my corporate life, I continued to be involved with technology and training. And that evolved into instructional design. And in the mid-2000s, I went back for my master's degree at Indiana University in instructional design. And it was sort of this, you know, this is 15, 20 years ago, and it was sort of this hybrid delivery. And so it was just great. And, And I had my kids at this point. And so they were they were like three and four, something like that. And uh, so it was that it would, I wanted to find a a good quality program that I could do, you know, easily part time and still have you know have kids. So I was doing that, but but also I also had a hobby making soap. And it sounds funny, but I started making soap actually in in Gainesville. And continue to make it in Madison. We lived in Madison and I started selling it on Saturdays at the Madison Farmer's Market. And before I knew it, I had it in a roughly 25 or 30 stores. Wow. And so, yeah. So while I was getting my master's degree, I actually decided I, a number of things kind of just all happened at once. And this was at the very beginning of me deciding to get my master's degree. I ended up go full time doing my soap business while working on my master's degree and, and sort of exiting the corporate world for a while. And so it was sort of my stay at home mom job, you know, making soap in the basement while the kids were napping or, you know, at a sitter for a little while. Um, and then maybe cutting it at night or, you know, trying to market it at night. Um, I learned how to do web design myself. I was it was a very bootstrap, you know, business. I learned how to do everything myself. I, you know, started doing web design <laughs> to sell it and learned how to do a shopping cart myself. Then started selling it online. And soon very quickly, I ended up with an order, a very, very large order from a nonprofit organization in Wisconsin. They were they were doing it, selling it as a fundraiser. And I ended up opening a shop in Oconomowoc. And I had that store probably for three, four years before I ended up going back to corporate world. So sort of my little <laughs> segue from the corporate world was running my soap business. But, you know, and I, you know, I did a lot of things. I incorporated the business. I, I ended up doing private label for, for bed and breakfast and for other individuals who wanted to sell it. And so, you know, a lot of it worked, but, but what struck me is 
because I had also started to do consulting work part-time where I was doing contract instructional design work during that time, just to kind of, you know, bring in more income. At some point it struck me that like this handmade soap thing started becoming really popular. In fact, you can still find it everywhere at farmer's markets and things like that. Rock River Soap Company. So, and, and it was, we were living on the Rock River um, for, for a short time and that it was named after the Rock River, which goes through Watertown, Wisconsin. Love it. So, yeah. So, you know, fast forward, I ended up, you know, finding myself in a situation where it was just, I think that just the economics of it, kids growing up and wanting to, to have more income. I ended up going back to school and, and actually, I think I, I, I also ended up getting divorced in shortly after that. And that was actually a really critical turning point for me too, because one of the conditions of a divorce, well, we agreed that we, that we would move to Southeastern Wisconsin. And the reason being is I wanted to work in the, in the North Chicago suburbs because I knew I could get paid a lot more in Chicago area than Milwaukee area in, in the field that I was in. So it's great. I actually ended up getting a job for Walgreens Corporation in 2005. And, you know, that was very, that was a very important turning point in my career because up until that, up until that point, I had done a lot of contract instructional design work. Just a t- I had a ton of it under my belt. I had I, I did web-based training design before anybody was doing it. Wow, and you I, were really early. Yeah, yeah, I really was, early. Wow, because, because I had all that technical training, you know, technical experience early on. Yeah, you know, I was doing computer training in college. And that evolved to doing computer training later and also doing sort of technical support. And then when I had my own business, I was doing web design. And so just, just that, that independent, exploratory, curious person, I was always kind of learning how to do the new thing. And that's really characterized my whole career in learning and development. It's just always kind of pushing the edge and seeing, well, what else is there? And I mean, in some ways I miss the whole instructional design piece. And, you know, one of the things you miss out on when you're leading a lot of times is you do have an opportunity to lead being innovative and lead thinking innovatively and, and drive learning on your team. But you have less time to do it yourself, right? Less time to sort of play with the technology or explore. So I sort of, I, I do miss those things, but yeah, I, I, I was doing computer web-based learning when you had to do a lot of it manually. You had to know HTML, you had to know JavaScript, you had to know all of those things. So you know, there's um, no, there's no Coursera. There was no Coursera. <laughs> right. Well, and, and you know, the video, everything was very time consuming and very difficult to do. And so, you know, now we have all these, now we have all these um, fantastic learning tools and increasingly they're AI driven. And so we can build e-learning in no time. We can record video in no time and, and put it online. And we used to have problems with bandwidth and video and that's just not a problem anymore. And so slowly we've evolved. So creating content is easy. 
creating learning content used to take a lot of time. And, and now it's something that really anybody can do. What inspired you to, to write Hardwired to Learn, you know, and who's the book for? So I, I got the idea to write this book during the pandemic. And I, I say that kind of loosely because I always wanted to write a book. I actually was always interested in being a writer. And during the pandemic, I think it became really noticeable how much technology had been accelerating. And then there was this tipping point during the pandemic um, around technology and particularly AI. And it dawned on me that there's a lot of potential to that, that we can really tap into if people can be better learners. And, and not everybody wants to be a learner. <laughs> you know, like a, a lot of people, we're all learning, whether we like, like it or not, we're all learning. But I've run into a lot of people um, since I've wrote my book that are like, no, not for me. I don't, I don't need to be a learner. And, you know, the, the book is actually really about quite the opposite. It's like, no, we actually do all need to be learners and here's why. Yeah, that's great. So I, I love when you talked about that aha moment because it was, I think it was in 2007 and most of us couldn't see as far into the future as, as you were, you were seeing and where we are today. And, and as you said, COVID was a tipping point. We call it an accelerator. You know, McKinsey says that we moved in three months, we moved five years into the future, whether we liked it or not. Yeah. And so, but the, all of the trends were that were moving in, in that area. And it sounds like for learning and development, it was already moving in that direction. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we've, there, we have been speeding up our ability to create content, right? All along. Um, but now with Teams and Zoom and all of these things becoming just so ingrained in our daily activity, um, you can see how easy it is for anybody to sort of be interviewed or, or do a quick recording and record themselves speaking or, and that doesn't even, you know, sort of AI has done a lot to change how we think about designing learning. And there's, there are new tools out that are actually can look at all your corporate content and build learning from it. Now I haven't, I haven't used any of those, but we're, we're starting to look at that and starting to look at how we, how we might tap into those. I think with leadership development, it's a little bit different because it's not, uh, it's not sort of proprietary knowledge that you have. Um, and we don't necessarily know always, we're always pushing the bar and pushing the envelope and re I guess shifting our idea of what really does it mean to be a good leader. So, so it's a little bit different because it might be knowledge that doesn't exist yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you ask ChatGPT, what does it take to be a good leader? It'll give you an answer based on information that is at least two years old. And so that doesn't necessarily get at, well, what, what is it going to be? What is going to be the most critical tomorrow? And so I think that's where humans come in, right? We, we're the ones who kind of look at, well, what is, what did it mean in the past? And what do we think is going to be different in the future? And at the same time, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, we're learning so much about neuroscience. You know, up until 1999, we, we, for a hundred years, 
neuroscience held that, and this was sort of the father of neuroscience, you know, said this, and this was the belief for a hundred years that the adult brain does not develop new stem cells. And so it wasn't until 1999 that researchers identified, oh, I think there actually are stem cells in the adult brain, which means that we have the capability of building new brain cells. And, and so that was 1999. And so writing this book, it was like 20 years of, of information that we knew. And then, and then also during that time, a lot of research had been done about neuroplasticity. So those two things, the ability to create new brain cells and the ability to sort of rewire your brain. And there's all sorts of research about neuroplasticity, stroke victims and car accident victims who have the potential of relearning how to how to eat and relearning how to talk, even though some of their brain isn't isn't operating anymore. And so there's just so so much that we don't know. But one of the things that we're starting to understand is that adults really have unlimited potential to learn and that humans in general have limited potential, unlimited potential to learn. And so that was really the crux of my book is trying to help people tap into that limitless potential and to to sort of shift from, you know, that fixed mindset into this mindset of, wow, we can continue to rewire our brains and build new brain cells for the rest of our lives. And researchers have found that we can't absolutely do that for the rest of our lives. You know, well into our 90s, they've found evidence of that. So it, it sounds, you know, really deceptively simple, but we, we, have, we don't really do a good job of tapping into this evolving science. And what's interesting is we've learned more about how the brain works in the last 20 years than in the last 200 years. And I talk about that in my book. It's like, we've only really begun to scratch the surface. There isn't anything that we're doing tremendously different, you know, in the last 20 years that really um, demonstrates how we've been able to translate this science into new ways of, of learning. And I, I talk about my book, The Matrix, <laughs> because you, know, you might remember Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves learning Kung Fu and Oh, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but just something that he could learn by osmosis, you know, and I don't, I don't know that we're going to find that anytime soon, but we have these very primitive ways of teaching and learning. And I just got to thinking like, well, what, what's getting in the way of learning? So, so I wrote this book initially, you know, I had talked to a very good friend of mine who has, has written a couple books and has been wonderful support for me. And she she's a marketing guru. So of course she's like, oh, you have to have an audience. You have to have a target audience. It has to be a specific target audience. And I'm like, oh, this book's for everyone. Which, you know, I, I took enough marketing classes to know that you can't really technically market um, something to everyone that you have to have a an audience. But at the same time, I was just like, well, everyone has a brain. So this book is still for everyone. But um, I took her advice and sort of imagined myself writing it to my younger self. And so I was looking at, you know, the, the, the corporate employee that, you know, maybe wasn't in there a millennial, you know, or, or maybe even a Gen Z or who was coming, coming, coming into the corporate world and trying to figure out how to, how do I need to be successful? 
And so it's, it's understanding, well, what gets in the way of being of learning and how can you be more learning agile? But what's been, really been interesting is, and I've been teaching classes at my, at my um, place of work and as well as other places talking about learning agility and, and other things. And I've had people come up to me and people who have read my book who are much older than I am tell me that it's been very life-changing for them. And I've had people very young. Um, actually, I've been very flattered by some of the people who have um, brought me in as guests to different events to talk about my book. People who, who, who are younger and definitely sort of innovative and pushing the edge on a lot of things. And they see this as transformational. So, you know, even though I kind of was writing to my younger self, I'm finding that a lot of people are finding that the messages resonate with them and um, that it can be meaningful for everybody. You know, it harkens back to a Nike slogan that was, uh, Nike is for people who want to become better athletes. And then they put an asterisk on athletes. And it said, if you have a body, you are an athlete. I love that. I think that's what you're saying here. And you can tap into that too, is yes, it's important to have an audience. But if you have a brain, you are a learner. And so I, 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 I love the, the thought that you have. So being in the learning space early on, what's, what's the biggest shifts that you've seen? I really love being a learning leader because, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity, I think, being in the field, seeing, seeing shifts happen. And one of the things I kind of noticed, I probably, I, I actually remember the, the moment that I noticed this, um, but it's not, it's really looking back that helps me really see this is that, and this is just part of one of, this is one of my strengths. I don't know if you've, you've ever done strengths finder. Gallup has, it's, it's fantastic. I, I really believe in helping people find and sort of lean into their strengths. And my number one strength is future, futuristic. But I didn't know that, you know, I obviously now I took a strengths finder test a few years ago, but at some point, you know, I think it was 2005 and I was working on a specific project and I kind of felt just, um, I think unengaged by this project. I felt like it wasn't actually going to move the needle at all on anybody's behavior because just the incentives weren't aligned properly and just the the way people were doing the work and like training isn't training isn't something to to fix every problem you know and so i started kind of having this this aha moment of like wow we really we really bring the training people in every time there's a problem and it's not always the problem and we only look at training as problem solvers. We don't look at, you know, training as, as doing good and driving change and driving strategy and driving competitiveness. And, and certainly some, some organizations did. And I think, you know, GE was one of those organizations that kind of tried to do that, right? And with Crotonville and, and, and things that they did with their leaders, you know, kind of way before other companies did. But back at that time, I just, I felt like a lot of what I had been exposed to was a lot of, problem fixing and sort of basic training and not really looking at the whole host of behavior around it and understanding how do we get people to really behave the way that we wanted them to. So we start looking at that and I, I actually, it helped me, 
I think really become like a good consultant, you know, around my work. It's like, well, what are we trying to drive and what are we trying to do? And, you know, is behavior change, you know, is it, mo- is it will or skill or, or what is it that's actually causing those challenges? But just asking those questions, I started to just see the potential for learning and see that it was much more than, than we were, we were using it for. So what was kind of cool is just seeing it evolve while I had the opportunity to sort of be a part of it. And, and that's why I love being a leader right now is because I see, I continue to see the opportunity that we have from learning to drive competitiveness with, the, with companies, not only competitiveness, but sustainability, right? And so we think about, you know, one of the things that has really kind of excited me lately, and it comes from Larry Fink, who's, who's president of BlackRock, has every year he publishes a letter to CEOs and urges them to do a number of things to help help sustain corporate profits in the long run. And and because he recognizes that short run, in the short run, you know, if we only make decisions to benefit our shareholders in the short run, then he's not being a a good fiduciary to his clients who are long-term investors, right? And so, you know, we have pension funds and 401ks and we're putting money in the stock market for 30 years or 40 years. How, how do we make sure that we're making good long-term decisions? And so I actually think about learning as just really being a critical tool for sustaining companies, you know, well into the future. And if we're not thinking about how we're developing learning agility and developing skills that we need in the future, then how are we going to not only make sure our company thrives, but make sure that we have customers for our company and make sure that the communities that we're operating in are healthy enough for us to be able to operate in those communities. So it just, you know, I think it's kind of fast forward a lot to get from like, oh, being on a training role, thinking that we could do a lot more for companies to now seeing like, this is actually something that we have to do if we're going to, you know, sustain work well into the, the next century and, and in a healthy way. <laughs> Just talked about the, the transformation that you've seen. And because you can look into the future, I'm not going to ask you what the stock price is going to be tomorrow of Google, but take us, take us, take us five years into the future. Where do you see learning and development going to? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think as a field, learning and development has shifted from sort of this content creation to how do we really drive business outcomes that, that we want to drive. And then, you know, as I've been talking about just more recently, how do we equip um, our employees and companies to be ready for change and ready for transformation? And it's what are the systems that we put in place and what are the, what are the support structures we put in place? It's less about just the learning. Um, and so I think increasingly we are going to have to be, you know, learning and development professionals are going to have to be sort of, they're, they're going to have to be experts at their own learning <laughs> and, and be willing to change their minds on a dime about how they think people learn. So it's actually, we're, you know, we're role modeling learning by just how we approach our work. But, but understanding that if we're going to have 
people who are equipped for the future and we're going to have people who are able to sort of shift on a dime that they have to be be learning agile and so so we're going to have to always be it's less about creating content and more about putting support and structure in a place for people to navigate their own learning and navigate their own their own journey so to speak yeah, I think that's great. Talking about today versus five years into the future, what are you seeing the top skills are that are needed to be successful today in work? Yeah. Well, learning agility is number one, right? And it's really just being able to sort of unlearn, learn, relearn <laughs> material and, and, and not just knowledge and, and material, but, you know, really be able to kind of question your own paradigm and your own, I call it in the book, I call it your personal matrix about how you think everything operates. And so, you know, like our expertise and what we know can get in the way. So this ability to kind of question is like, well, how do we, how do we really know that? And how would I know that? And what if we wanted to try something different? So I think just that ability to always not get so caught up in it that you're not getting anything done, you know, but, but to always be aware that there could be a better way. So I think learning agility is number one. I think cultural competence and really being inclusive and embracing diversity is becoming increasingly important. I think Gen Z is like a whole new generation. And I will hear some of my Gen Xer friends like just say, well, I just don't understand it. And um, it's such a common thing to say and it's like, well, you got to understand it. You got to learn about it. If you don't understand it, then you should learn about it. Because how do you go, how are you going to interact with the future if you don't take it as a given that this, this generation that's a couple generations behind us is different? They have different values. They have different views of the world. They have different, um, Different everything, really. And if you think about it, they've been raised in a completely different world. They've been raised with Instagram, you know, and so they've, they've built their lives around how they're showing up in their photo stories and, and whatnot. So if we, we, it's, it's, I think that's one of those difficult things that a lot of us have, you know, a hard time getting, getting our head around, but also, I mean, we're becoming increasingly diverse and, Corporate America needs to become increasingly diverse. And so I think building our cultural competence and, and I would say that I don't know that anybody's particularly expert at this, <laughs> but it's really going to help us, I think, continue to learn. And I mean, one of the things that's really clear is that as things become increasingly, increasingly complex, no one person has all the answers. So collaboration becomes really, really important. Collaboration, communication, and those are, those are two of what I call the power skills. And you can't, you can't collaborate or communicate well if you don't have some cultural competence as well. Um, you know, critical thinking um, is another one, I think. I don't know that we're, I feel like our critical thinking is degrading to some extent. And I think it might have to do a little bit with this sort of, instant gratification that we have and how, how we don't have to, we don't have to try to figure things out a lot of times because we can get all the answers that we need um, in so many places, but we, we actually in critical thinking is more in demand than ever. 
but harder to exercise than ever. Um, so I think that's, that's a big thing, problem solving. And then of course, things like data analysis. I think data analysis is one of those things that, you know, I, I tell my team, like, we all have to know how to use data. We, it's not something that we can have just, you know, one person on the team do, because if we just have one person on the team do it, then how are we going to recognize when something is off? And, you know, how are we, so there's just a certain amount of fluency that everybody needs with data, I think, to be successful in the corporate world. So I think that that's the big things. And then, of course, you know, technology, right? And being able to learn new technologies and embrace new technologies. I actually think like technology is about democratizing capabilities. So, and, you know, data is an example of that. You know, for example, we used to have I, I was thinking about, we used to have, I, I had somebody on my team once and some companies will still have this, but I had somebody on my team whose entire job was data analysis. You know, now my, my belief is everybody has to be good at data. And of course, there's some people who probably do more of it than others, but the tools are there for everybody to use. And, and, you know, maybe you don't have access to all the data because you don't need access to all the data, right? But the tools are there for everybody. And if we just leave all the analysis to just the few people who have jobs doing analysis, we're probably not going to have enough analysis done, you know? So it, it, it's not something that only a few people can be doing. Really powerful. You talked about readiness. That was huge in the, in the Navy. You probably experienced it yourself. You know, do you have the personal readiness to be able to analyze, critically think through a situation that's presented in front of you. And if you can't handle that, have you taken the time to set up a, a team that you can tap into that collective genius, that collective critical thinking, that collective experience so that you can solve problems and you can manage change together. So I think it's, I think it's really important, you know, these, these skills, you know, 20, 30 years ago is like, what's your number one skill? And people in accounting would say, oh, I'm an accountant. And then that's changed tremendously. And so, you know, thinking about, hey, the number one skill is, you know, from the World Economic Forum, forum and, and you, you stated it, hey, it's, it's analytical thinking, it's critical thinking, it's problem solving, it's collaboration, it's cooperation. Being able to do that yourself, you can only be good when you're doing it together with others if you're able to, to do it well by yourself also. So I think, I think it's really, really powerful. So the, the shift to next year in 2024, one of the things that we're really um, advocating is the need for companies to have internal universities. Now, the bigger companies are, are moving towards that. You were early on with, you know, training and development programs but, you know, my experience in the submarine force was I knew nothing about nuclear power. I knew very, very little about leadership. And they had a laddered, stepped approach that they had set up. And that allowed me to be successful. How important on a scale of 1 to 10 is, is it for companies to have the training and development programs and specifically leadership training and development programs? Yeah. It's interesting that you tie it back to the military because instructional design actually has its roots in the military. 
And in fact, I, I, before this call, I went and got this book off my, my desk or off my shelf training within the organization. And it was written, I think in, in like 1960. And it's very interesting to me because it's probably one of the book, first books that I could find that was like about this, like taking a systematic view of development and training and understanding that we needed to do it. And it was well understood during World War II because we had to sort of massively train so many, so many, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people, right, for World War II. And not only, not only for the battlefield, but also in the workplace, right? And we were bringing people who had never worked before to the workplace and they suddenly had to learn it. And instructional design actually kind of was invented during that period when learning became so important. And since then, it's kind of come in and out of favor, like learning is, I I feel like learning is something that companies invest in whenever they're doing well. And then they cut whenever they're doing poorly, because it's, it's, there's sort of this mindset that it's optional, right? And technically, it is optional. You know, I, I, I think that if you're, if you're trying to, to stay a, a, alive, then, you know, you have to kind of turn it off. But unfortunately, and I think companies that have been around for a very, very long time, they know and, and they've experienced this when they lay off workers, it's hard to bring them back. And when you stop developing people, it's hard to bring them back and you have to re, redo it. Um, and so absolutely, I think leadership development is critical and, and it's not just critical, I think, for that company, but it's just it's critical that companies in general are developing leaders and developing leadership skills. And it gets back to creating a sustainable environment for companies and communities to thrive. And if if we don't, you know, sort of skill up people in general with these skills, then you know, where where would they get them from? <laughs> and so it's kind of I have a little bit of like, well, if you don't do it, who will mentality about it. It's it's something it's almost like a, a responsibility, I think, that companies have to develop leaders. So your perspective, is it a nice to have or is it a must have now? I think it's a must have. I think, you know, I, I think from a, from a competitive strategy standpoint as a company, if you're really trying to differentiate yourself in the long run and you're trying to compete in the long run, you know, there are a lot of theorists that'll, that'll say that human resources are your only source of long-term competitive advantage. And so if you think about that, it's the capabilities that you create in your people that are the only long-term sense of source of competitive advantage. And that, you know, that has to do with all your people practices, right? How, you know, your pipelines and recruitment practices. We have an you know, apprentice program where I work. Um, so all of those things are important, like all of it. But then, you know, how are you developing your people? And then how are you developing your leaders to drive the company strategy that you want and to, to help, you know, really create... And, and live into the strategy that, that you're trying to, to live into. So I, I don't think it's optional, but certainly, you know, if you're just trying to stay alive, you know, you, that you can see why some, why you might temporarily stop investing in it. But if you're not investing in it, then you're, you're, you're leaving that, I think, on the table. Yeah. I love those words of wisdom. How do you define your leadership style? And, you know, how has leadership changed for you over your career? Yeah, you know, I, 
I would say that my leadership style has, I've become a stronger leaner as I've just done that. It's just embraced being the person I am, you know, and not tried to be somebody else. Because I am very, I'm very informal. I'm very down to earth. I tend to be very direct, but very forgiving, you know, and very, I think, understanding, but also be, you know, always looking for the the next best thing and always, well, what's going to be even better? So I think there's a little bit of really focused on purpose and what we're trying to, what we're trying to drive and the outcomes we're trying to drive, but to allow everybody to just show up as themselves and trying to drive that. And, you know, recognizing that we're all just going to be, we're all just going to show up with what we have to, to drive that. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important to me as a leader, and this is the stuff that we have to think about, because if we're not deliberately leading, we're not leading. And I see this happen all the time where people are not being deliberate about being a leader. Like they're in charge and they're wearing the hat, but they're letting everybody else run the show. And then, you know, I, I think there's a quote that somebody said, you know, I just hire the best people and then I don't, you know, I don't need to be a good leader. Well, you know, that's fine if you're, if you're hiring, you know, people whose job, it, you know, you're hiring people who are graphic designers and you just need the best graphic designer or whatever. You don't need to, them to work together to do anything. But if you need people to work together to get to accomplish things, and then you need to hold people accountable and you need to inspire them, you need to engage them, and you need to make sure that they're always pushing the bar and evolving and changing and transforming. All of those things require being super deliberate about leading. And so I think the biggest problem that I see with leaders is just not leading, you know, not being deliberate about leading. And the best leaders are, I see them being very deliberate about leading. <laughs> so it's just, it's sort of like, I think that's at the crux of it is like, are you trying to be a leader or are you trying not to be, a, you know, are you not trying to be a leader? Um, but, you know, I, I think what, one of the things that I try to do is make sure that I create a, a, a system, you know, so to speak, of where we all have to work together to achieve what we're trying to achieve and visibility around what we're trying to achieve. And that can be really difficult in a learning environment, right? Where things can be soft and mushy and not really visible and not really clear. And, and it's, it's easy. We're, we're doing that for the company, right? Where we want to show transparency around what, we, what we're accomplishing. But sometimes we forget we're also doing that for ourselves. And it's helping us you know, drive towards a common vision and a, and a common good of what we're, we're trying to achieve. Wow. That's, that's great. Love all those comments. So if you're looking forward, what do you hope, you know, hardwired to learn your, your work, what do you hope the lasting impact will be? You know, I think it's funny because I, I remember, you know, somebody coming up to me after I did a talk on learning agility and saying, wow, you know, that, that really changed my perspective. I thought I was, I was done learning and that, that really changed it for me. And I was like, that's it. I did it. I, I don't feel like I need to do anything else. I, you know, I just, I, I, I had one person whose mindset was shifted as a result of not even reading the book, but just hearing parts of the book. <laughs> so I think, you know, the, I think that's what I'd, I'd like to do is just really 
see people see themselves as unfinished and see themselves as learning. And I think from a from a long term standpoint, if if enough people read it, and certainly my book isn't the only book that has you know is either on the topic or related to the topic, but just that there's a groundswell of sort of understanding that we're all lifelong learners and, and that we are all unfinished and all have, you know, ha- have yet to become the person we were always meant to be, no matter where we are in our lives. <laughs> unfinished. That's a great word. Love that word. Cause you know, we always want to think about getting to a, a place in time and you can use this for whatever type of metaphor or whatever type of situation is, is, you know, it's not the end end place that you're trying to get to. It's the entire journey and the continue on that journey, I think is just so, so powerful. So Terry, for those listening, what's one thing you'd recommend a person do to surface the leader inside of themselves? Oh, that's, that's a great question. You know, I, I think, I think it harkens back to what I spoke about earlier is be yourself, and then also just be intentional about being a leader. And I think those two things of of being yourself and and knowing the person that you want to be, and then being being deliberate about being that leader, I, I think that's the most important thing. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you so much for all the wisdom that you shared on the Surfacing Leaders podcast. What I got out of it was, you know, your tremendous journey you know, your can-do attitude, the ability that you have and you fostered and, and, and nurtured was your independence and your ability to be exploratory and your ability to take a look into the future. Again, I would highly recommend that listeners go get the book, Hardwired to Learn. We read it as, a, as our entire leadership team read it together as a team. And so we learn, we use that as a learning moment to be able to do that. It's a fantastic book. So again, Terry, thank you so much for being on the Servicing Leaders podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Servicing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.